If you're looking for a quality Kickstarter marketing specialist, I recommend the folks over at Next Level Web. They charge flat fees with an easy monthly agreement and they get serious results. Their goal is to get you funded on day one and their rate of success for that is above 90%, regardless if you're a veteran or a first-time creator. As a client myself, I can personally attest to their quality as they have helped me raise tens of thousands of dollars for my own projects. So if your email list looks pitiful, but your game is awesome, head on over to nextlevelweb.com slash kickstarter and take your marketing to the next level. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about crowdfunding. We're talking about how to get the most out of your crowdfunding campaign, whether you're on Kickstarter or GameFound or any of the other ones that are out there. How do you make sure you're not leaving a ton of money on the table? And we're talking to Andrew Lowen and Sean Bradford, formerly from Next Level Web, but now they've rebranded to the Crowdfunding Nerds, which I think is a lot better name. Anyway, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Hey. Thanks, Kate. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you back, Andrew. You have been on the show several times. Now, the first time you were on the show, it was supposed to be just a regular old episode, you know, about an hour or so. And there was so much content, I had to break it up into two episodes of basically <laughs> an hour each. And uh, and so you're just a, a wealth of knowledge. And now Sean is working with you as well. And I've had several conversations with him. And so both of you guys just know a lot about how to market board games specifically for the crowdfunding Uh, side of the market. And so, yeah, I'm just excited to get into the topic and and talk about this because this is something I feel like can help a lot of indie publishers, Mm -hmm. a lot of people that, you know, want to to bring a game to the marketplace. Kickstarter or GameFound is the only way that they're going to have enough funds to do it. And so how do we maximize the amount of money that they bring in so that then they can bring a wonderful game to market mm-hmm. without having to, you know, pull out a second mortgage on their house or, you know, whatever yeah. the uh, the crazy things that, that sometimes you have to do just to, to get enough money. But uh, anyway, before we get into that, who are you guys? How did you get into kind of the game design and game marketing side of things? Andrew, we'll start off with you and then uh, we'll go to Sean. Sure. Yeah. So uh, my name is Andrew Lowen. I am the CEO of Next Level Web. And uh, we also have a brand crowdfunding nerds uh, because Next Level Web just, it doesn't, it doesn't really say that we do crowdfunding and uh, crowdfunding nerds is way more fun. So we branded crowdfunding nerds. And in the last, you know, year and a half or, or I guess two years, we've hired three people um, to, to, you know, because we're growing so much and it's, uh, you know, just become about half of our business. We're crowdfunding games now, which is crazy. Um, so I am the, uh, I guess the chief nerd behind the show. And, um, you know, I've done a lot of podcasts. I feel like your people that have been listening for a long time could probably go listen to one of the old introductions, but I'm a board game publisher. Now I I self publish a board game called deliverance. Um, and I am, you know, we've marketed about closing in on a hundred Kickstarter slash game found campaigns now. Um, so that's me. Awesome. And then Sean, what about you? Yeah. So I've, I'm, <clears throat> I don't know who I am. <laughs> I'm, I sort of head up all the Kickstarter stuff with uh, crowdfunding nerds. 
and it gets pretty wild. There's a lot to do and a lot of plates to spin at the same time, but it's a lot of fun and we've learned a great deal since joining the team. Uh, beforehand, I just freelanced doing digital marketing, did a lot of local stuff just with restaurants and things. But yeah, it's great to be be here with you today. Yeah, we ended up bringing Sean on board something. Oh, well, uh, so I connected with Sean because he initially interviewed me about deliverance. And uh, he had a really kind of a, a great mind for marketing, a very kind of technically uh, savvy human. And uh, I want to say toward the end of 2020, that's when we brought Sean on board, like around November 2020. Um, so that's yeah. pretty exciting. Very cool. And all right, so before we get into this full disclosure, I have been working with you guys for several years now. You have helped me market several of my campaigns, my crowdfunding campaigns. You're now helping me work on uh, Robomon, which I am super excited about. It's been two plus years in the making, and it's just like, oh, okay, we've got to get this thing on GameFound soon. And so anyway, full disclosure, we are in a somewhat business uh, relationship. I want to make sure people know that going in. You know, that's actually a good point, I think, uh, for... Uh, if if I you don't mind me plugging ourselves, it's really cool that you've enjoyed our service enough that you haven't f- yet fired us. We've worked for I want to say our uh, the Robomon is our fourth campaign together, and that is that is awesome. So I I really enjoy just simply getting to chat with you as like a longtime client, and you're really going to be able to ask great questions. I think that Robomon is going to be your um, I don't know what, how to describe it. Your, your coming out party or your announcement that I think it's going to be the biggest project you've had. And so I think this podcast is probably going to be uh, very important for you to listen to again after, (laughs) because (laughs) you are basically who we're talking to with our, with our topic at hand, you know? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that I think about all the time. How do I make sure that I'm not leaving you know, a whole bunch of money on the table because when you when you're doing a big project and Robomon is massive, it is absolutely way too big for me. If I'm being honest, like looking back, had I known it was going to get this big, I don't think I would have started it. You know what I mean? Like it's just it's just too big. It's it's what a company like a large company <laughs> needs to uh, be working on, and it's really just me and a handful of freelancers figuring it all out. And that's partially why it's taking so long. There's just only so much time that that we all have. But uh, anyway, yeah, you guys have done a great job. Uh, you've helped me build my email list up to, I don't know, it's right around like 5,000 people at this point. And um, and so hopefully that turns into lots of backers. And, and y'all have helped me make a good chunk of money in the past on my other campaigns. And so, yeah, hopefully it all works out. I have pretty much bet my entire company uh, on this game. And so if it doesn't work out, well, I guess uh, there's always McDonald's. I've heard I heard they are, they're hiring for like $12 or $15 an hour now. So uh, there's always that. Yeah. But uh, anyway, let's get into the topic. What, what are we talking about exactly when we're talking about maximizing your crowdfunding campaign, not leaving money on the table? What, what exactly does that mean specifically? And Andrew, we'll start with you. And then Sean, feel free to uh, chime in. Sure. So the idea is that, um, you know, for the person that has been working on a board game for a really, really long time, and they've been putting all of their blood, sweat, and tears into this project, all of their hopes and dreams into this project. I mean, I've, I personally worked on Deliverance for, uh, it's been over five years now. And, um, you know, the, the, the heartbreaking thing that we've seen in the past is when somebody works so hard and, has such great hope. And then, you know, they generate a third of what they should have, uh, when they hit 
Kickstarter or GameFound. Uh, we've had situations where, you know, in, in the past, uh, one particular game that I just can't ever shake. Um, I know the game name, it's in my head, but I don't want to say it. It's just, I, I was around, you know, when I would attend conventions, they were there. It was a game that I really love. It's like a, a Japanese RPG um, that, you know, turned into a board game. And I, I just think it's such a cool thing. And they, it was, had such potential and they brought it to Kickstarter and then shipping killed them the way that they handled shipping. And, uh, you know, they ended up, they ended up making like, you know, a hundred or hundred fifty thousand dollars on the first day. I think it was a hundred thousand dollars on the first day and like a bunch on the second day. And then they had a negative, negative days for the next like 12 days in a row. And, you know, the, the whole thing about the trajectory of a Kickstarter campaign or game found, you're, you're going to make like a third of your revenue in the first 48 to 72 hours. And, you know, up to half of your revenue in, in that time. And the rest of the campaign, you know, is you hustling and working hard and that kind of thing, earning every single pledge that you, that you get and uh, working hard for that. But you want to see an upward trajectory and so do your backers. Otherwise you're going to get people canceling because they feel like the campaign was a loser and there are so many other opportunities to invest that same money, you know, with somebody else, um, in, into a winning campaign. It's almost like, you know, you're at a horse race. They want to bet on the winning horse. Right. And so if a consumer sees that your campaign just isn't performing, you know, that they're not like, you're not knocking down as many stretch goals as they hope. The momentum is really slowed. That can really dishearten backers and cause them to cancel. It will stop people from pushing your campaign and talking about your campaign and trying to get other backers and engaging with your campaign. And, uh, it really, really can change the momentum of, you know, where, what, well, I guess the trajectory of where you're, you go as far as how much you raise, how much buzz you generate and, and that sort of thing. And it's something that, you know, I've, I've just, I've seen enough times to recognize there in many cases where people are a very penny wise and pound foolish where certain things they they're like oh that's not that important and it ends up just being very devastating to the um you know the the cap of what they could have possibly raised and um so that's what we're talking about is just kind of how to to get the very most out of your kickstarter campaign without stepping on any landmines <laughs> maybe Right. And as a creator, I can speak from firsthand experience how frustrating it is when a campaign ends. And even if you had a whole bunch of backers, even if you made a good chunk of money, you still look at things and with that hindsight and you go, man, I feel like I could have done 20% more, 50% more. Somehow, some way I could have brought in another 500 backers here or something like that. Maybe I should have spent a little more time building the email list. Maybe I should have had a few more reviewers or previewers that I reached out to. Like there's always these things you're going to look back on no matter what, even if you make $10 million, like I'm sure Brian, Brian, uh, Sanders, Brandon Sanderson, anyway, who just had like the biggest <laughs> Kickstarter in history is still going to look back and go, wow, I probably could have made a hundred million, you know, like if, if he had done a few <laughs> other things differently. And so you're always going to do that, but I guess you're trying to minimize that as much as possible. Uh, Sean, let's go over to you. What, do you. what are your thoughts on this? What are some things maybe you've seen specifically? Andrew was just giving a, a kind of specific without being too specific uh, story, uh, anecdote about this. Anything you've seen that you were just like, ah, oh, man, this could have been so much bigger, so much better. And, and any thoughts on like, what, you know, why that was? Yeah. One thing I, I, I would mention is 
to think about what is the purpose of your crowdfunding campaign. And I think there can be an overemphasis of trying to make the campaign itself as profitable as possible. And I would really encourage listeners to think about the bigger picture of your campaign. And we run a we run a podcast, Crowdfunding Nerds, and we interviewed Chris Birch of Medifius. He's a, a friend of ours, a client of ours, and they've run a, a couple of campaigns. And one thing Chris said is that a lot of first time creators they they fall into the trap where they design a game that is actually too expensive to bring to retail. So they design a game that might do really well in Kickstarter, offers a lot of content, but then they can't do a reprint because it's too expensive. And this is why I really appreciate what you're doing, Gabe, is that you're helping creators really think about these things and design great games that can succeed in the long term. So what my encouragement to creators would be to not just only focus on the crowdfunding event, but to think about your business in the long term, because I think the, the players who are in this for the long haul understand that the money ma- the money is made not at the crowdfunding event, but in retail and distribution and the reprints. And I think that's where you need a, your, your, your mind needs to be in that space. So you, you need to almost think of the crowdfunding campaign as an investment into your business and the sort of the long-term trajectory of your company. I think that's where you're really going to see high yields and high returns as you go back to Kickstarter, as your fan base grows, as you become more influential in the space and as you get better as the designer as well. So that's, that's sort of where I would put a, put the, the big, big shot towards. Right. right. Yeah. Like you could always do a seventh continent where it's like, Hey, we have a really cool idea. Oh, we made $7 million. I guess we'll do this full time now. Um, but that's, uh, not many, not many campaigns. Um, uh, most, so one really great example, actually, that's running right now, it's, um, Marco Picota, who probably, who has been on your podcast before, I think with, uh, legions of steel, uh, yep. we, we helped him market legions of steel and the reprint and this new latest campaign that he has called legends of or, uh, escape from Stalingrad Z. And he is a great example of somebody that's treated his company like a business versus a hobbyist that's making something, you know, you, I would, I would liken it to, you know, if you're going to a trade show, you put a booth together, you come up with a professional appearance and that kind of thing. And, and that's what the way a business person would, would think. But if you're a hobbyist, you would, uh, you know, maybe bring your craft to a street fair and, uh, you know, just sell, sell a thing there. And, you know, if you want to be a professional company, unless, unless you have this amazing formula that just crushes it at street fairs, I mean, you, you have to level up your game and, and, you know, make, you know, come up with that professional presentation. But the idea that, you know, with Marco, his first campaign for Legions of Steel and his second campaign were, they, they were profitable, but each campaign built upon the previous campaign. And that's the way he looked at it is that if I develop, you know, if I get fans, if I show that I can um, deliver and that kind of thing, I will add more emails to the emails that I already have. And, you know, when he launched Legends or Escape from Stalingrad Z, he had over 5,000 emails on his list. And that wasn't from marketing just a single campaign. That was from his past campaigns. And he has had the greatest success um, that he, he has personally ever experienced that, I, that I've seen um, in crowdfunding. Uh, it's, his, it's his, I guess, his sixth campaign now or, or so. And at the time of this recording, he's already more than doubled his, his ask on his launch day. So, you know, we're, we're, uh, 
it's just an example of somebody that has uh, really kind of treated his, uh, you know, treated this like a business. And I think that, you know, sometimes, especially first time creators, they really want to see their thing come into the world and they um, will oftentimes, you know, like there's, there's just at a certain point, you have to turn your passion project into a business project, right? Where you need to, you know, know your numbers and, and all of that. And um, it's, it can, it, it kind of turns it from being just like a fun hobby into work. And that, that, you know, it's, I, right. I think a lot of the time people aren't prepared to do that. Well, a lot of people aren't thinking long-term, unfortunately. That's just kind of the way it is. Also, as creative people, and I definitely speak from experience here, I am always like, oh, what's the next cool, shiny thing that I can jump to? And it's hard to have that long view and play the long game, but it is so important. Now, there are the companies out there like Exploding Kittens that really thought they were only going to do one game. That's why they named their company Exploding Kittens, because they thought that's all it was ever going to be. <laughs> they thought they were going to raise like ten dollars to $20,000 on Kickstarter, and then they raised million plus dollars, you know, and all of a sudden their lives changed and now they're doing all sorts of games and it's just a really cool company. Now that does happen. There are outliers, but it's very dangerous to assume that you're going to be an outlier. I think it's way smarter to hope for the best, but plan for the worst and think through, okay, long-term, how am I going to do this? How can I have a, a slow burn? And hopefully I have a hit. Hopefully I have a game that comes out that sells, you know, 5,000 copies on Kickstarter as a first-time creator, and then it comes out and people love the game, and I get to do a big reprint, and then almost like a Gloomhaven. I think Gloomhaven, it only made a few hundred thousand dollars the first campaign right. that, that Isaac ran, but then the game came out, and it was like, oh, this is one of the greatest games of all time, and then he did another campaign, and it had a huge following. It had already built up, and so he made millions plus dollars, and then he did another campaign that was like the biggest board game in history. And so, again, it was a slow burn. It took several several years to do that. And he had some other games along the way that actually weren't that great and didn't get good reviews and didn't do super well on Kickstarter. And so, you know, it's, it's a process. It's a, it's a, it's a marathon, you might say. And uh, to just have that mentality going in, I mean, Amazon, when they first started doing eBooks, they were selling Kindles at a loss, knowing that long-term or hoping long-term that they were going to have so much of the market share that they were going to make a ton of money because everybody was going to buy the eBooks for the Kindle. And so they would sell the Kindles at a loss, knowing that people were going to buy the eBooks for that particular device. And obviously it worked out. Now, I'm not saying to sell your board game at a loss, hoping that you're going to be Amazon. You're not. But at least have that kind of long-term vision for what yeah. it's going to be. Now, Sean, what are your thoughts on ways to do that? Um, you know, you mentioned maybe starting small. You mentioned kind of building up and campaign now and then do another one six months and a year from that, whatever. I'm kind of building up a, a crowd. And that's nothing is raising a crowd, not just raising money. But anyway, what are some other other thoughts that you have on ways that uh, people can do this? Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the selling Kindles at a loss because exactly that's exactly what the console gaming arena does as well. At one stage, I was, I was selling high end laptops, and when you actually look at the specs of at consoles, they are pretty much selling them at uh, at a loss, and their hope is to make money through licensing of games and uh, accessories. So that's their business model. It's interesting that it's practiced there too. So in, uh, when it comes in terms of other things that uh, people could do, I, I'd also say to, in terms of making your crowdfunding project profitable, focus on your pledge manager. Now, uh, Gabe, you could probably testify to this. I've I've recently backed to the realm of shadows. I'm really excited to get that. It looks like a neat game. You can play it by yourself and it's like a one-handed game. Super cool. But one thing I noticed that in the pledge manager, you had the ability for people to purchase 
uh, your other games from other projects. So Hunted was there, and this is an op- this is an opportunity where really the pledge manager can can really expound upon what you what you've just done at your crowdfunding event. And this this is again is how how you make your your projects increasingly profitable. So you can resell uh, like maybe the leftover stock you have from the first campaign in the pledge manager. And what I I think a mistake I often see first-time creators do is they want to be very aggressive with their ad spend during the live campaign and they reach a lot of people and i also have this feeling of you know if you didn't spend so aggressively you probably would have eventually reached those people on facebook but you would have got them in the pledge manager side of things and i know right now we're running ads for deliverance and you know we're, we're just we just have a small spend that's trickling each day but it's, it's profitable it's a profitable campaign and it's it's self-sustaining and so i think people need to think of the pledge manager and how to leverage that as well during their campaign. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's kind of like when you're on YouTube and maybe you're looking at videos about board games or something like that. And all of a sudden the algorithm says, Hey, have you seen this video? And you're like, Oh, this is really cool. And this is from a creator I've never heard of. And you watch the video and you're like, Oh, this is excellent content. And what's the next thing you do? You go and you see more videos from them more than likely. And so if they've built up a catalog of really good content, you're probably going to watch all of it. (laughs) And they're going to (laughs) get views on all of that. They're going to make some ad revenue on all the views you just gave them. And so, I mean, think I can just think personally, and and probably people listening to this have experienced the same thing. All of a sudden you go go down a rabbit hole of video after video after video from the same creator. And that's just a way to kind of build up views. I know that's definitely been the case with the podcast where people have discovered it now and now they're going back and listening to 200 plus, <laughs> you know, 280 whatever episodes. And then that's building up, you know, the, the listens overall. And so, yeah, again, play the long game. Uh, but Andrew, I want to go back to something you said earlier. You were talking about that campaign that struggled because of the shipping cost. And backers came in and maybe they were super excited. Then they got to thinking, you know, $40 to ship a game seems like a lot. And so what could a creator do? I mean, shipping is what it is. You, you can't really change the numbers in reality, but you can do some things to maybe hide the costs in different ways. So what would you suggest a creator do if shipping is expensive to make it at least psychologically not be so daunting to people coming in thinking about backing? So the the first thing is know your numbers. I think that this is a really common phrase in business. Like if you watch Shark Tank or something like that, knowing your numbers is, you know, uh, something that you here a lot probably. But one of the most common issues is when somebody will just estimate their shipping cost and they'll say, oh, I think it's going to be between this and that, but they haven't actually figured out how much, you know, it's going to cost. And, or, you know, maybe they've, they've figured out their initial quotes and they're like, all right, I'm just going to use that number. You know, it's going to be $40 a unit to ship. And so that's what I'm going to charge $40 per unit on my Kickstarter campaign to that region or whatever. Um, Big mistake. Uh, People don't like to pay lots and lots of money for shipping. And that's a weird thing to say, given our, um, you know, current shipping climate, you really need to have a strategy for how you present shipping as one example of several. Um, So for deliverance um, and many of our clients, they subsidize the shipping. And um, in case of, uh, in some cases, the VAT taxes as well. So, you know, uh, a game that is, I'll just say, you know, deliverance, it's it's right around $20, $20 to manufacture, let's say, to keep things simple. I, I charge $89, but let's just say it was 100 to, again, keep things simple. So 20 bucks is the manufacturing cost, $100 is the 
total amount of money that I'm uh, going to gain. And, you know, after Kickstarter takes its pound of flesh and everything like that, let's just say I have $70 left. Um, uh, that money has to cover my uh, graphic design and my art expenses and so on and so forth. Uh, and and so let, let's say out of all of that, my margin, my total margin, the money that I get that will, you know, I mean, assuming I fund my Kickstarter, uh, I, I'm going to get, let's just say, you know, $40 uh, per game or 50 bucks per game into my pocket. Um, if somebody pledges a hundred and, you know, I'm going to get $50. So, uh, you know, and let's say your shipping is a crazy price at, uh, you know, we'll, we'll just say 30 bucks to the, to the U S or 20. I think deliverance is like 22 or something, but, um, so let's just say it's $20, uh, shipping or, or, or so. I will um, bury some of that cost in the actual uh, re- in in the margin that I would have made. So instead of making fifty dollars, I would rather uh, show. And this is one thing that we did. I um, buried some of the cost into the cost of or some of the shipping investment into the cost of the game. Um, so I would uh, I was able to charge nine dollars shipping to the U S is an estimate. And, and actually the whole, all the COVID insanity happened like after, uh, my campaign, like two weeks after my campaign, everyone, just all of the, the data came out and was like, Oh man, that's going to cost a little bit more than, than I expected. Um, but the idea was that I would, um, definitely charge for shipping. I would tell them that it's an estimate and based on, you know, and it's going to change based upon, you know, rates and other things like that. And I'm so glad I included that language. But um, the idea is that a $9 shipping cost for a uh, $100 product is excellent, an excellent ratio. If I were going to spend a, you know, um, I mean, honestly, even $19 is fine for a, for a product like that. But if you were to charge $40, um, you know, for a $100 product, I mean, the ratio starts to really be out of balance and your backers are going to, or potential backers are going to do that equation in their head. They're going to say, okay, this is about the amount of stuff I get. And wow, that's a really expensive shipping compared to what I see on all of these other campaigns. And the reason is simply because they're hiding the true charge of shipping by subsidizing that amount in the cost of their game. Um, I think that that's a really important strategy that by itself would have probably solved the problem of the previous company that I had mentioned. It would have certainly, um, you know, people would have, people would have uh, not complained in, in the way that they did. So I, I think that that's a really important element. Um, also just knowing the actual manufacturing costs and um, you know, a lot, a lot of the time, you know, we had like an RPG book that a uh, client came to us and they were like, okay, I need, hardcover RPG, or I need the, the RPG book to be a hardcover so that it's like the standard size of all the other ones. That's going to be $15,000. And it's also going to be another $15,000 to ship uh, or to freight and, and everything. And so I'm going to charge. So my funding goal is going to be 30 grand and my RPG book is 20 bucks. Um, and so it was, it was, I don't know, you know, 20, uh, I guess here, let me do the math real quick. What? 30,000 divided by 20. Uh, that is, uh, 1500 backers to just simply fund the campaign. And, um, that type of math, doesn't work very well on Kickstarter. So 
what our encouragement was, was like, hey, what is the minimum possible amount that you can get this RPG book printed for? Maybe, you know, if it needs to be hardcover, okay, I understand, but let's figure out other options for manufacturing that would allow you to have 300 backers in, you know, to actually fund your game. Really the, um, the first, uh, for, for first time creators, we always recommend between three to 400 backers would be your target. You know, when you, when you, because that's the, the typical campaign. I mean, if, if it's a first time creator and they're building their email list for the first time and, and that sort of thing, and they give us the proper time and they have uh, the, you know, the money to invest in this and that they are going to get 300 to 400 backers they have the potential to get that on their first day. Uh, but I don't like planning for more than that. So the, the funding goal should be achieved as quickly as possible. And I, so I see a funding amount that requires between three and 400 backers as a really solid best practice, I guess, for, for a Kickstarter campaign. Um, so your manufacturing numbers, you need to figure out how, how can I actually make this if that is you know, all the backers that I get, um, you know, I think you see some campaigns which require really only like a hundred backers to fund. They are, I mean, they're either assuming that they're going to get way more backers than that to make this affordable or they're, um, I mean, it's just the money has to come from somewhere and that's not enough money to, you know, to get a game made and delivered. Right. So, um, I mean, they're anyway, I guess I could, pause there, but the manufacturing and shipping and knowing your numbers, it's just so critical. Um, there's probably more areas. Like you're saying, understanding backer psychology and messing with the, no, I don't say messing with, cause you're, it's, it's all the same really, whether it says $40 for shipping or, uh, and then the game is 80 or it says $20 for shipping, but the game is a hundred. It's the same money, but, but you know, just understanding backer psychology and what people are willing to give you. And if they see it as, $80 game, $40 shipping. They're like, oh, I don't know. But they might be much more likely to back if it's a $100 game and $20 shipping. And so thinking yep. through how the numbers make people feel. All right, Sean, so that's shipping and some other things. What are what are some other things that you have seen that have been roadblocks to campaigns and have caused people to think twice about backing or to back out of campaigns? What are some of the, some of the other things that people need to avoid? Well, it's funny you mentioned uh, backer psychology because that's a huge part of your your campaign and structuring those pledges to be as, as attractive as possible. But another thing that we've discovered through running, I don't know how many campaigns at this point, at least a hundred this year, the um, stretch goals are a necessity. For some reason, backers, you could create a game <laughs> that has everything in it at this price and people will not be satisfied. But if you have the same, same price, but with less things, and then you gradually increment you know, added things through stretch goals, people are far more satisfied. So it, it's strange because we've had some clients who've said, I'm not doing stretch goals and it's really harmed their campaigns and people have commented with the stretch goals. Um, and so it's, it's a necessity of the platform to have stretch goals and to leverage them and to gamify the experience. Like I think the, the crowdfunding event is an experience. It's something that people participate in. It's not a like an e-commerce store where they're going and they're purchasing something. This is a person who is part of your community, who's been following your stuff, who's developed relationships with other fans of this product, and they want engagement. They want to have their say. They want to be a part of the process. And stretch goals, it really allows them to experience that and, and have that sort of communal 
yeah, we're doing this together experience. And I think that's key to your crowdfunding. Right. Now, one thing I've seen a lot of companies do nowadays is instead of having stretch goals or maybe in addition to stretch goals, they'll do these daily reveals and they'll say, hey, you know, check out the campaign every day or every other day because we're going to show you some new content that the game is going to have. And it might be some new miniatures or scenarios or whatever. What are your thoughts on those um, either as a replacement for stretch goals or at least in addition to? I have thoughts on that if you don't mind me jumping in. Um, there, there are so, so there are some companies that do this really well. Um, and there are others that I feel like they're really missing out. Uh, in fact, we just did a podcast on social stretch goals and really kind of dove deep into this subject. And it was, um, you really are gamifying the engagement of your crowd. So the, the goal is to get your crowd super excited and hyped and you want them to, um, to actually engage with your campaign, to share it with people and so on and so forth. So um, the idea of daily unlocks, like come back every day to see what it is that you get. It's in, in one way, it's like the carrot on the stick is to make them come back, but it's not really incentivizing the right behavior on its own. So you will, you will get people excited like, Oh, I can't wait to see what, what happens next. But you don't get that, um, you know, we'll say with like a traditional stretch goal approach of, hey, guys, we're only $1,000 from the next goal. Let's tell everyone so that we get it, right? And it's a funny thing because, you know, if, you're a, if your campaign ended and you were $1,000 away from the next stretch goal, you could totally unlock that stretch goal. And it, for the most part, it's not a big deal, right? Um, you know, as far as manufacturing, in fact, you've done your homework you have factored in all of the stretch goals into your manufacturing price. So if you don't unlock the stretch goals, it just means usually a cheaper game uh, than, you know, um, at least that's what, that's what we always recommend. So the, the idea behind gamifying the um, I mean, really, I guess gamifying everything so that your audience wants to engage and push and uh, is, is motivated to do the right things. It's kind of, you know, like when you're designing a game, you want to design a game so that the players, by doing the, the the right actions to make themselves more powerful, more awesome, more influential, and whatnot, are doing the things that actually bring the game to its end, right? So Catan is an example that everybody understands. I mean, you roll the dice and you collect cards and, and, and uh, resources and whatnot, but you build your city, right? And you want to see your empire unfold and that sort of thing. And that is how you actually win the game. You get points if you create a town or a city and, um, you know, other things like that. And eventually the game ends because players are doing what is desirable. Um, another great example of a game that kind of, that I really love, but falls flat on its face in some cases, uh, is twilight Imperium where you are playing this epically grand version of space Catan. It's like Babylon five, the board game, um, where, it's just an amazing experience. But I remember I had this one. I'm at like my first game ever. I was at like four points. Uh, and it, you know, the game ends when somebody gets to 10 points, uh, that person is the winner. There was a guy that had nine points and was about to win. And my army was massive. And I had the opportunity to wipe that person entirely off the map before their next turn. And that would have meant 
that the game would have gone another four hours at minimum. Um, we had already been there for seven hours, not counting the lunch break. And I elected not to, um, not to kill that guy because I just, I didn't want the game to go on for a long time. And, uh, sure. I feel like <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, <Andrew. So laughs> it was Ruel, Ruel Gaviola. He's, he, he knows, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was one of those things where by doing what was desirable, I wasn't actually furthering the game to its end. Uh, there should be like, you should get a free five points for knocking a player off the map. I don't know. But if, if, you know, it would have incentivized me to to do what I thought was fun, right? So in marketing, it's kind of the same way. You want to really encourage backers to do the right things, the things that are desirable. And, um, you know, there are so many people that debate over stretch goals or even Kickstarter exclusives. In fact, uh, you know, for our deliverance campaign, we didn't do any Kickstarter exclusives. And I actually regret that. I, I think that we would have made more money if we did. Um, and we could have figured out a way to do it in a way, like, for example, my, my metal, the, the metal coins of deliverance, we had this large oversized first player token that should have been a Kickstarter exclusive. More people would have backed the game. More people would have jumped in and, and, and that kind of thing. The, the reality is that stretch goals, you will make more money. If you do stretch goals, right. You will make more money on your crowdfunding campaign. If you do Kickstarter exclusives. These are, I, I mean, I, I don't want to say it's indisputable, but in the vast majority of cases, this is, this is true. Um, even if it's not popular, it's, you know, it's rather, you know, I'm, you don't want to kill the tail end of your game and say, you know, this and that and the other is Kickstarter exclusive. And this whole expansion is Kickstarter exclusive. What that means is that if you want, unless you want to get onto your backers, you know, hit list, um, you can't sell those things later, right? You know, maybe the next time you have a Kickstarter campaign, you can, but, um, but yeah, so there's, there's always a, a balance to strike, but you definitely need to play into the game of crowdfunding. It is a, a game. I mean, this is, this used to be about bringing great, wonderful ideas to life. And now it's about, uh, marketing really great products that already exist mostly. You know, <laughs> right. And like we've talked about on the show many times in the past, you have to come with amazing art and amazing gameplay already. It needs to be mostly designed and developed and illustrated by the time you launch. Uh, otherwise, you're just not going to stand out against all the other games that are on there. And especially now that these big companies, these massive publicly traded companies in some cases are your competition, it can be very uh, challenging to to be successful at all, especially if you're trying to overfund and be really successful uh, it's definitely a challenge. Now, would you say that it's good to do stretch goals and some daily unlocks? So you are bringing people back to the campaign every day or every couple of days. Maybe it's not daily, but maybe, you know, a handful of times over the campaign, you say, hey, you know, tune in on this day at this time because I'm going to show you some really cool content that's in the game that you haven't seen before. And also having some stretch goals, would that be a good way to do it? I do think that daily unlocks. Um, so one of the one of the challenges with a crowdfunding campaign with your audience, there's this backer, or rather, it, like a fatigue that begins to set in. Of you know, some people will come back every single day and be like, "Hi, everybody!" You know, on their comment, it's like I'm, I have my morning coffee, and I and I you know, then the next thing I do is I comment on this Kickstarter page, and that's just like you get your hardcores that are there no matter what. But then, you know, for the most part, you, 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 the majority of your fans, they, you can put them to sleep in, um, not 
of, of boredom, but just simply when they fund, when they pay the amount that they're going to pay, you know, they, they're not really able to, let's say afford more, or maybe they've already gone and hit the all in pledge level. You know, they're the next step is kind of to wait for the last two days and to see how many stretch goals they knock down and they can go 26 days or, or whatever, um, in between, you know, the time that they back and then the time that they look at the campaign next. So the daily unlocks are kind of a, a carrot on a stick to get them to come back and take a look and just not go to sleep, you know, but I do think that there is uh, something to be said for something that engages them, that, that asks them to interact. So I, I think that these types of stretch goals are in a way they kind of, you know, publishers try to blend the manufacturing cost, which is a very real substantial number um, you know, you have a number of units. Those units have to have a certain amount of components. And a lot of people are like, well, I don't want to have a bunch of question marks in the actual, com- you know, the card count. And if the dice are going to be 14 millimeters or 16 or custom dice at, you know, whatever, they want to know their numbers before they go to the Kickstarter campaign and or and launch, right? Or GameFound, right? And so they do the daily unlocks. And I think you know, and the, the intent is to say, Hey, this game is finished and we're going to, you know, gamify the content in, in this way by unlocking daily. So you should return and look. And I think that, um, you know, that for campaigns that are going to make a lot of money, you know, like Gloomhaven did that or Frosthaven, sorry, well, both really, but, um, for, they, they say, Hey, all the, the content is in there. And Frosthaven, I think did a, something that was really, really smart, they took the, their daily unlocks and, or, you know, periodic unlocks. And then they did something else, which I thought was really clever. They had three different factions and they were like, Hey, you know, we have, uh, I forget like the crab people and, um, a couple of, uh, there were two others. I can't remember now. It's like the pyramid people, the crab people and the other things. And, uh, I can't, I can't remember, but they, they said, okay, when you do cool stuff that features, you know, your desired faction, I'm going to attribute a number of points that like an arbitrary number of points that I just decided in my own head, but I'm going to attribute points. And for whatever faction that wins at the very end of the Kickstarter campaign, we're going to design an additional module and feature them a little bit more deeply in the actual game. And I thought that that was a really smart, really clever way to bring people back. Um, there are also, you know, if you have a very puzzly game that, you know, maybe like, like Frosthaven, people know how to play Gloomhaven at this point, you, you know, they were able to, you know, come up with puzzles that were like survive four rounds and here are the enemies and here's your character and here are the cards in your hand. How would, you, you know, it's a puzzle to try to survive. So the idea is just, you know, to gamify the experience in a way that encourages interaction. Yeah, for sure. And that makes a lot of sense. All right. You mentioned social stretch goals a minute ago. Sean, let's go back to you. What are your thoughts on social stretch goals? Are they worth doing? Is there a better way to do them? What are your thoughts? Yeah. So if you were to, for a moment, just ponder the how how Twitch is monetized or even how YouTube is monetized and how can you have a Twitch streamer or a YouTuber who that can survive decades doing this? It's not because they've they are focusing on a, a particular game, right? It's that they've developed a community that follows them, that cares about them, and really a, com- a community that cares about each other. And this is really what 
social stretch goals are seeking to achieve is to bring this community together to achieve a certain goal. It sort of reminds me of on Twitch, you have people who can, through the the, the, the chat, by putting in certain commands or typing certain things, they can control a, a video game like Pokemon. And you've had Twitch communities actually finish video games by working together to kind of finish games uh, on Twitch, which is pretty interesting. And really, this is the same thing when it comes to a social stretch goal. You're getting people to work together by doing something. Maybe it's you could even gamify a social stress goal, saying, "Hey, there's a monster in front of you. Do you want to use the the axe or the bow and arrow?" And then you know people vote, and then you know you could, you could almost do do like a, a little adventure with your stress goals. Whatever it is, is to be entertaining and engaging. And I know with the exploding kittens campaign, there's a lecture. I can send it to you. You can put it in the show notes that discusses the importance of social stretch goals for that campaign. In fact, they didn't use monetary stretch goals. They only did social stretch goals. And I think Experian Kittens is a great example uh, of a company that has done this very well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I like how you're talking about being creative. Don't just do likes on a post or something like that. Like find ways to really engage and interact with your community and give them opportunities to do things that also maybe affect the game in some way. Like Andrew was talking about with uh, Gloomhaven, you know, that's really a social thing as far as maybe you use some polls or you, if you're going to use likes, use it in that way and then add content to the game or change the game in, in some way, I think could work really well. Let's, uh, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about timelines. If I'm going to launch a game, let's say this summer, when should I have already started the marketing and, and finding reviewers and starting the email list and getting the Facebook ads going on that stuff? Like, like how far out should I do things? I mean, we talked about this a good bit. Why, you know, whenever you came on the show, I think that was probably like a year and a half, two years ago mm-hmm. at this point, Andrew, but have things changed? Is it a longer timeline now? Is it shorter? What are your thoughts? Well, you know, um, it's, it's fortunate that you, you had this book that I was privileged to write for, for uh, in the marketing section about how to launch your Kickstarter. And you did this, you put, you put that on your website, all of that marketing timeline stuff, I think is largely does hold up to today. But one thing that people, you know, it's really almost a lost opportunity. In fact, actually, let me back up real quick and say, you know, the creator themselves, you know, we're a marketing agency and we, we market Kickstarter campaigns. The, the creators themselves are such a key to the marketing of any campaign. I mean, with, with the greatest marketing in the world, the greatest agency marketing for you and, you know, a a creator that is checked out, it's just not going to go very well, you know? And so the first thing that I I find a lot of people miss this opportunity, you know, it's almost like the programmer mindset where they're, they're developing a thing and they're working on the thing. And when it's done, that's when it's ready to be marketed. And I think that is such Oh man, it just hurts. It it grieves me when I hear things like that, where they have an email list of zero, but they have a game that's finished. And I think, um, you know, what you really need to do is you really need to engage people before that. When you're creating art, when you're working on the actual mechanics, you should be in public places talking about your thing, or you know, in Facebook groups, or in. Um, I mean, you see a lot of people in Facebook groups say, hey, what do you think, A or B? You know, people like the the logo for my game, the box art. Do you like the A or the B, you know, uh, version? And they get engagement. And there are a lot of other ways to get engagement online. But, uh, you know, going to Unpub or Protospiel events, doing, you know, just going to your local board game night 
and saying, hey, this is an ugly prototype that I have, but would you be willing to try it? Those people, every single human that you interact with is eligible. They have an email address, I, I promise you. And they, you know, even if they're, you know, 90 years old, they, they'll buy, I mean, it's 2022 or they're going to have an email address and they um, will, they, I mean, you can always ask them if they would like to follow along with your project. And many of them will say yes. Some of them will say yes without having any intent of following along. Some will give you a spam email, but many of them will actually give you their legit email. And I'll say it's one of the things that I noticed when uh, from the deliverance campaign, I believe we broke down the actual numbers and we earned like a 16.7% conversion rate from people that had seen the game like you know, before we started the actual paid advertising on Facebook, we made like $60,000 from those people um, that joined our email list from, you know, like way back in the day. And that marketing cost me like so little money. You know, it was just, hey, I have a crappy thing that I made, but, you know, we're at a, a the board game, you know, local board game shop. And um, I mean, that that doesn't, that just was my time. I just leveraged my time in a in, you know, a little bit beyond playing the game, I actually got an email address, right? And that really uh, kind of, uh, I guess it was, it, it really paid dividends, you know? So um, I think that that's something that people really, really need to, really need to do. And that starts when you're, when the idea of your game starts, you know, it's just much uh, you know, there's, there's not a beginning of when you should do that. You know, like uh, Tony Robbins says the best pl- time to plant a tree was 20 years ago or 50 years ago. The the next best time is today. And that's the, the same is true with your pre-marketing, you know, that organic marketing. And I, as a marketer that deals in paid ads all the time, I am a huge believer that if people actually want your product, that they're going to want it without you having to pay money to Facebook or into, into Facebook ads or Google ads or YouTube ads to, you know, to build a following. I think that if it, it should be, in my opinion, required for every marketer, for every person making a thing to try to expose that organically and get a, a traction. And if you can't get traction and you're doing everything that you should be doing, um, you know, maybe your messaging is wrong. It's usually not that the product is bad. You know, if it's something that you wanted to make and play, then it's it's more along the lines of like the the messaging might be wrong, but it's super important. And anybody can build an email list of, you know, I mean, I built an email list of eleven hundred before we paid Facebook, but I think that building a, a list of a hundred is, I mean, everybody should be able to do that. I think when it comes to that question of when should I launch, we often get this from our clients. They will give us a launch date. And it's, it's completely arbitrary. And our next question is, well, why are you launching on that date? Do you have an engaged community? How many people are on your mailing list? What's your email open rate? How many people are in your Facebook group? What's the sort of engagement in your Facebook group? And use, when we ask those questions, they usually then push the, the launch date back because they realize that they need to sort of build their community a bit more before before launching. And it's really key to, to do that and to have that engaged community. So I don't think there's a magic number. It really depends on how energized people are about this product, how stoked they are. And I suppose one thing the crowdfunding event and your pre-marketing is really doing, it's really testing the waters. It's saying, do people actually want this? Uh, can I market this organically with ease or is it an uphill battle constantly? And I think 
the process of getting to the launch, you're going to have a pretty good idea if this is going to fund or not. And I, it shouldn't be a risk. You should be, feel confident that this is going to fund first day. My community loves this. I've had lots of feedback. It's been play tested. It's on tabletop simulator. People have played it. They've loved it. And that's sort of the atmosphere, the attitude you must have going to Kickstarter. It shouldn't be it shouldn't be a gamble by any means. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, all right, Sean, let's uh, let's keep talking to you on this uh, type of thing. What are some other obstacles that people run into? What are some other things that you just want to warn them of, or make them make sure they're aware of, so that they don't leave a lot of money on the table? Well, it's, something just popped into my mind. I don't know if it, if it will leave money on the table, but it. It has something to do with just managing your your campaign. There's now a op- options for creators, right? You have Kickstarter and GameFound, but there's significant differences between them. And I think one of the issues people might start having on GameFound is that it's going to be a lot more challenging to deal with comments. And one reason being is that on GameFound currently, and this might change, anyone can leave a comment. So someone can literally create a fake account and start commenting on your campaign. So that could take up a lot of resources if you've got bad actors who are, you know, going to manipulate that circumstance and there's there's some mitigation on kickstarter with that right people have to at least back the project have to at least um submit their payment information this way to track who they are <laughs> so that might be something to think about as well as that that community management and how to make make your community feel like they are heard now andrew i know that you spent a, a great deal of time answering every single question on your Kickstarter campaign. And I think it, it shows and it pays because people feel like they've been heard and they, they're far more energized then to invest their, their time and money into your campaign. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about community engagement and actually answering questions and making people feel like they're are being listened to. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's so what I find is that people will treat you as you treat them. Um, if you treat them, like they are a coin purse, you know, or money bags or wallet, they will treat you in in kind. So, you know, if I want your thing, then I'll buy it. And if I am annoyed, then I'll complain and I'll give you a one-star review and I won't even care. I, I You're just some corporation that's making a thing that I may or may not want, right? And we, we see some of these companies, you know, that are that are larger companies out there, treat us like cash cows and, uh, you know, not naming names, but I'll buy their product if I want. And maybe I, maybe I won't. And, uh, there's just the only incentive is selfish for me. Like, will it benefit me? And that's the way they've trained me to behave. But what I would love to see for, uh, the indie creators that are listening to this podcast and even the big companies, I mean, there are a lot of, uh, you know, the truth is that even big companies in this industry are still small businesses. Um, you have the ability to treat people as they, as they would want to be treated, which they, they want to be heard. They want to be involved. They want to know that you listened to them, that they, you know, they want to know that if they put their passion into, you know, championing your, your thing that you're going to, that you're going to champion them, you know? And I, I think that people, when they, when you look at an email or even when I personally make a statement, like anybody can get a hundred emails on, on an email list. The temptation is to treat those emails as, as though they're like dollars put into a bank account or, or whatever currency, you know, from whatever country you're listening to into a bank. They're not each email is attached to a human that has an opinion that has a 
a job or a, you know, whatever financial situation and a family and needs and, and wants and desires and so on. And one of the main desires people have is to belong, you know? And I think that when you can create a community that is a supportive place that people want to be, that people feel like, Hey, when I have feedback, you, you know, you listen, even if the answer is no, I can't make that change, but I, I asked you for your feedback. It, it makes such a big difference. And I think that treating people not like a wallet it goes a long way to people supporting you just simply because you are making another product. And I'm sure that we can think of companies like that, where it's like, I know a company that treated me well, that, you know, even opportunity for, uh, for, to show your quality is when, you know, you deliver a box that's banged up and the, you know, your, your, the fan is like, Hey, I'm mad about this box. Everybody knows the box is the most important, uh, the most expensive item to ship again. You might as well ship the entire game, right? And uh, uh, but companies that do it, they win fans for life. Sometimes, you know, it's um, just something that they went above and beyond. And I think that you know, everybody listening to this podcast, if I could only give you one element of where people go right, they treat others just like Brandon Sanderson, you know, um, in his $40 million Kickstarter campaign. I'm sure he wished he did that last year, but, um, you know, maybe it'd have been a hundred million dollars this year. Um, but it's one of those things that if you treat people as though they matter, then, you know, for reasons other than just their wallet, it, it will pay back. It'd be paid back in dividends, uh, spades. And talking about that campaign, he went and backed every, what, every publisher, project on 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 the on the platform so in in a sense he gave back to the community that helped him so that was cool to see right he definitely built some goodwill through a lot of things in that campaign and like we were talking about early on in this episode it's about playing the long game and just understanding that hopefully you want to do this for a while uh i mean board games take a long time to come to fruition so you're going to be doing it for a while anyway even if you're only doing one project but uh you know play Play the long game. All right, Sean, let's go uh, back to you. Let's talk about Facebook ads in general. I know a lot changed with Apple making some changes and iPhones and different things like that. And I, I know that's impacted Facebook ads kind of in general. Can you talk about that for a little bit and just talk about, you know, are Facebook ads still a really good way to market a campaign or are there maybe some better uh, opportunities out there? Yeah, Facebook is still the leader, in my opinion, when it comes to marketing board games. There are some challenges now, not just with the iOS 14 blocking track it, tracking. Facebook has recently just done an update where they removed a lot of the interests that you could previously target. So for instance, we we market uh, Conan the Barbarian, and that used to be an interest that we could target. We can no longer target <laughs> target that, which is very irritating. So now I have to like target ancient history or things in that sort of arena to try to get that kind of vibe of, of an audience. Um, where this this has really impacted games which have religious themes. So Deliverance, for example, we can no longer target Christian. We can target Passion of the Christ and Amazing Grace, like Christian films, but we can no longer target Christians directly. I think this is where you're going to see the help of an agency uh, very helpful because what we actually do now as part of our contracts, uh, people have to basically sign over their data points of their Facebook pages and so it's, that's all, it's not public. It's all hashed. We don't have access to it. But basically within the ads manager, we can then, for instance, use the data points on the deliverance ads. We can say, okay, create an audience that are like the people who've engaged with deliverance because we know deliverance has a religious theme. So therefore this game over here, which also has a religious theme, currently we're marketing Bedouin games, the flood. And it's exactly what we've done. 
we, we can't target Christians directly, but what we've done is that we've created a lookalike audience based on the deliverance demographic, and we've used it for that religious-themed board game. And it's doing really, really well. The targeting is great. So I think you're going to see help with an agency that has these data points that you won't have access if you try to do ads yourself. Another thing we've seen is by splitting the live ad campaigns but from sending people directly to the Kickstarter page and sending people to like a a landing page that then brings them to the Kickstarter page. It gives us greater tools to uh, do some tracking, but also it, it's a better funnel in, this, in the sense that it warms leads up before it's just dumping them on the Kickstarter page and expecting them to back. So we've seen better conversions by first directing cold leads, people who've had no contact with your game, to a landing page and then to the Kickstarter page. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I remember when uh, Apple was changing some things and Facebook, I think, sued them and it just didn't go well. Or, you know, there's a lot of legal stuff going on. Uh, it was like, OK, how is this going to change the board game landscape as far as Kickstarter goes? Because a lot of campaigns, maybe all at this point or all all campaigns of note use Facebook to uh, to market. And so it's yeah, something to definitely be aware of it. But I guess that's that's the case with marketing in general. Things are always changing, you know, once anyone figures out something that works, then everybody does it to the point where maybe it doesn't work anymore or it doesn't work as well. And so then you kind of have to pivot and figure out something else. And that's just the name of the game, so to speak. But uh, Andrew, going back over to you, what are some other things to bring up? What are some things maybe we've left out so far as far as reasons why people would leave money on the table with the crowdfunding? Yeah. So one common thing, you know, and this is um, maybe might seem to be common sense, but I find that some of the best advice is stuff that you know that you should be doing, but haven't done yet. Um, I, I think a lot of the best advice that people should should receive are things that they themselves know they, they needed to do and they hadn't done. And uh, so the first thing is, you know, you have to have a good game. No matter how great your marketing is, if the game itself is not good, then there's a problem. Uh, we've we've seen many games just, you know, have fantastic art that didn't have great gameplay that just were a flash in the pan and then gone. And uh, as 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 Kickstarter or you know as board game creators, we all kind of should strive for the evergreen title where your product is going to sell and sell and sell. And the only way that that happens is if it's good. Um, the art is the same way um, that one common mistake we see a lot that really hurts a game's quality and our ability to market it is the in, in the art, when you have all your characters designed, let's say, uh, you know, you have all your good guys designed by one artist and then all the bad guys designed by another artist. And then, you know, maybe the bad guys use like a really heavy uh, like shadows and whatnot. And then the good guys are like pencil sketches that were colored in. I mean, it's just the, the arts would look different, right? With two artists and um, you are probably the person I'm talking to in this podcast is the art director for their game. It's your responsibility to make sure the art looks, I don't know, congruent with the other art. Um, that's super important. Another thing is launching a Kickstarter without an engaged community just, you know, kind of goes without saying almost, but you really need to have a community that is ready for your project. And for, you know, they, they should know the price. They should know when you launch. They should know why it's important that they back on the first day. They should know all, all of that stuff. And you're, you're, you lose out when it's like, 
we're just going to launch on Tuesday. And then you just go for it and uh, you send your email out. But if the people on your email list didn't know about that, they might not back until 9 PM that night or something, you know, and, and you really miss out on a lot. You know, you want to try to fund your game as quickly as humanly possible. You want to have your game funded in 11 seconds or whatever. Right. And so, um, that's super duper important. And let's see. The one thing I say about the art, your art is only as strong as its weakest element. So imagine if you had like box art and you have these really, really highly illustrated, super cool characters in the foreground, but in the background, you've got like these really poorly illustrated mountains and scenery. People won't look at the cool characters in the foreground. They look at the mountains and say, what, what's with this art in the background? Nah, no thanks. So it's an example of your art is only as strong as the weakest element. So if there's anything that sort of stands out, you need really you you need to address that as soon as possible because that's what people are going to look at. Unfortunately, you know it's, it's like when you play a video game; it's only uh, the it's only when you see something that stands out or that's nasty or bad. You say, "Oh, this game has bad graphics," but most of the times it's it, it goes unseen. You just kind of it, the the game sucks you in and you don't really notice the art. But I think that's the same way when it comes to your art direction. Try find the thing which stands out as the the least polished and try address that. Right. I think it's so important in business to understand, are you playing basketball or are you playing soccer? What I mean by that is with basketball and the NBA in particular, you're only as good as your best player, right? If you don't have an amazing top player, you're never going to win a championship and you probably just need to find pieces to surround that person with and you can win a lot of games. Uh, in soccer, you're only as good as your worst player because the other teams are going to figure out who is your worst player and they're going to exploit that person and they're going to score goals. And so which which sport are you in? Are you in basketball where it's really important to have just a phenomenal one thing and then build everything else around it? Or are you in soccer where it's it's important to go basically from the bottom up and make sure everything is as good as it can be? Because like you're saying, people are going to focus on that that worst piece. That weakest link in the chain is what's going to get too much attention and then that's going to cause your business to succeed or fail. And so just understanding that, you know, which, which sport you're in, I think is so vital. Yeah. You know, uh, one thing that that reminds me of are, uh, something that we talk about every once in a while, we call them hygiene factors. And I believe that I wrote about this in the book and it's on, on the site or on the board game design lab site in that marketing, um, section, hygiene factors are things that won't necessarily help you, but they are absolutely going to hurt you if you do not have them. So I always use the, um, the example of going on your first date. Um, if you fail to brush your teeth, you will be less likely to have a second date, but just because you brushed your teeth doesn't get, doesn't make it more likely that you're going to have a second date. It, it just will hurt you if you fail to do it. So things like having reviewers that are of, uh, of reputation, you know, you need at least one like dice tower or, Jesse Anderson over at Quackalope or Rado or the, you know, man versus meeple crew, something like that. Um, you don't need a hundred, but you at least need one or two. You need to have gameplay. Like I need to be able to look at the, a full gameplay and just see how it actually works and judge for myself if I'm really interested or if I'm on the fence, you know, and there, are, uh, you need to have a good shipping section. Your risks and challenges section needs to be filled out and explained, uh, you know, and um, all of these things matter. And, uh, uh, you know, one one thing that I, I find is uh, kind of going back to the common things that people miss where they leave money on the table, it gets quite chaotic when you launch a Kickstarter. And 
the, the, the day you launch really the week of you're just hustling so hard most, most of the time to just get your graphic design finished on your Kickstarter page and all of your numbers worked out and double checking, you know, whatever, uh, you know, is on your list. And, uh, when you actually launch your campaign, don't forget to send your launch date email. You would be surprised. I would say a quarter of our creators forget to send their email immediately. Um, you know, I launch a campaign. I want to see that email go out immediately. I want to see your Facebook post go out immediately. I want to see, you know, you should have a Facebook group. There should be a post that goes out right away saying we've launched just a notification that sends people out whom are already prepared for your launch and are waiting for you to launch. You need to say we have launched and every single possible way that you can indicate that you need to do that. And, uh, you know, when you're trying to answer comments and other things like that. And it goes crazy. Like for deliverance, we had like 900 comments on the first day and it was nuts. Um, and I just, you know, it was, I had to, I had to prioritize. I mean, there were 800 comments that went unanswered, um, until like the very end of the day or something, because I just had to do the most important things first. And that would be to let everyone know that it launched and that, it exists and, and that sort of thing, you know? And, um, so I think that's really important. You know, maybe, maybe one last thing also is a lot of, you know, maybe less experienced creators will, you know, when they're going to, you know, their first or second campaign they're they're looking at, especially looking at an agency like ours, it's like, what is the ROI, the return on investment or return on ad spend? You know, somebody will, some people will be more familiar with that term. And, you know, if I spend, you know, $1, am I going to make $3 back? You know, and, and that's kind of the ideas that you want. If you spend money on ads, you want to make a good return. And so, you know, I think that people make a mistake of trying to, they treat crowdfunding like it's e-commerce, you know, e-commerce is like, Hey, if I spend, you know, a hundred dollars on Facebook ads or Google ads or wherever, I expect to have a return that justifies me spending another hundred dollars. Right. And, you know, if I spent a hundred bucks and it didn't return anything, uh, I obviously know that I shouldn't be doing that. But in crowdfunding, it's a little bit different. Um, you don't have the ability to measure a return on investment until after your campaign is over. And that is kind of heartbreaking and frustrating from a marketing perspective, because I want it to be like e-commerce. I want it to be as cut and dry as possible, but the only way to you know, so it, it kind of, it changes the equation a little bit. It's like, I'm going to invest. I'm going to put my absolute best foot forward. We're going to get emails. I, we do, there are some things you can measure, like we can measure, you know, how much does it cost to get an email added to your list? And, uh, there are other things that we would measure like the cost per click. And, you know, we can, we have key performance indicators where we know certain things mean good, right. And other things mean bad, you know? Um, but, it's really, a, there's a little bit of faith sprinkled in there, you know, where you need to have faith in your product that people want it, have faith in the messaging that people are going to resonate with it. Hopefully you've done your homework. You've play tested your game a lot. You know what people find attractive about your game. That's another important thing, by the way, super important. You need to have your game highly play tested and know what you're, because you as a creator are telling me as the marketer, what people like and what messages resonate with people. Like, do people love the, you know, for deliverance, people love the angels or whatever. I mean, it's, I, I should know, you know, that I can't, t 
tell you every single thing that's awesome about the game in a single ad. I need to highlight the one thing that matters most. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, wrap things up. Sean, you got anything else to add? Yeah, one thing I'd quickly say, just in terms of thinking of the crowdfunding uh, event as uh, in terms of return on ad spend, return on investment, one thing to keep in mind as well is that you might actually see a very good return on ad spend. You know, we can track through referral links, backers coming in, but down the road, that backer could cancel their pledge. So that's something you have to account for as well. You might be seeing great numbers now, but know that, you know, it's only said and done once the game is shipped. Uh, so you could have, on paper, this could look great, but you also have to think that, well, the pledge might be canceled. So that's something to think about as well, that this space is different. It's not like e-commerce. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Maybe one last thing I'll mention is just that the, as far as cancellations, you know, from firsthand experience, you know, we try to do our best to treat people like humans um, and like they would want to be treated. We've had, I want to say, maybe 30 cancellation requests where people asked to cancel their pledge and- um, For deliverance. What, right, for deliverance specifically. And I always respond like, no problem. I, you know, at this point, uh, you know, my pol- our policy is that I, I can refund 90% of your pledge at this point because after Kickstarter and Stripe fees took out their pound of flesh, that's that's what's left over. And- um, you know, I, but I always ask the question, like, just, just wondering, uh, you know, why you're looking to cancel and sometimes, you know, every single occasion there, there's not been one occasion where somebody has been offended that I've asked that I've said, yes, I can process your request uh, just confirm this for me. And I'll, that 90% return or that returning 90% of your pledge is, is acceptable. And I will do that for you. And it's funny because it, of course it, it, it's the only option, right. That I have, but um, they will respond and say, oh yeah, you know, we just had a crazy car bill or we had, uh, you know, or I just wasn't sure that it would be a good fit for my gamer group and that kind of thing. And, um, just with a simple conversation, I'm, I've been able to, um, stop 27 people from canceling their pledge. Um, and then the other three people, actually one person said, oh my, I need new car tires because, you know, for one reason or another. And then another person said, I had a hospital bill and, you know, I refund hundred percent of those pledges because that's what I would want. You know, I would want a human to look at me as though I matter and not that my money matters. Right. And, um, so that's, uh, just something that I find interesting. Um, you know, we have a lot of pledges that, that, um, just people want to keep the product because they're, they're proud in one way or another of their interaction with us. So, um, gotcha. Well, hey, uh, you guys want to do a, a quick shout out to your company, next level web slash crowdfunding nerds. Tell people about that, where they can find you, what you offer. Sure. So, uh, yes, we run our marketing agency is next level web. Uh, we do digital marketing, um, and we've branded crowdfunding nerds, which is now kind of our crowdfunding arm because it just sounds so much cooler. And, (laughs) and we have a, so we have a podcast called the crowdfunding nerds podcast. It's, uh, we're on episode 70 right now. And we have uh, a lot of service, a lot of marketing services. We, we really specialize in pre-marketing. So if you wanted to get a game, if you wanted to bring a game to life, doesn't matter, you know, how big the, the game or, or, you know, how small, if you have an email list or you don't, we specialize in building email lists and getting games funded on the first day. That's really 
our goal. So in order to do that, we need about three months of time before your Kickstarter launches. And as far as the pricing, um, it's in general, like with Facebook ads and everything, you should expect to spend uh, $3,200 and, and above. It's kind of where it, where it starts. Um, that, you know, so it, your mileage may vary, but we have flat fees. We don't charge percentages of your, of your success. We, you know, we helped with uh, Modifius's Skyrim campaign and they made $1.7 million. And I think we charged them, uh, well, we charged them nothing because zero dollars. Yeah. Because we promised we'd do the first game found campaign for free. Um, and it just so happened to be Skyrim, but, uh, we, you know, we're just, we're really happy for people that make a lot of money. You know, that's, that's the whole point. Right. And, um, so I think that, uh, you know, if you're looking for a company that will treat you like a human and, you know, we're all board game designers. We've all, you know, a lot of us have published projects and whatnot, um, you know, through Kickstarter and funded successfully. So we understand what board game designers are going through. And, uh, you know, we, we just, we care a lot probably too much uh, about these types of projects. Um, so that's, that's the type of company we are. So if you want to look for a marketing company to support you, then contact us, go to crowdfundingnerds.com and fill out the contact form there. Um, or go to nextlevelweb.com slash Kickstarter. And you can, uh, find out all about us and, you know, decide, you know, our, our initial consultations are always free. So if you have questions, need questions answered, then we're happy to do that. Awesome. Well, gentlemen, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you joining me here on the show. Good luck with continuing to do more and more of these crowdfunding campaigns through the marketing forum and uh, good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Gabe. It's really a pleasure to have you uh, interview us and um, uh, and the, the whole board game design lab is awesome. BGDL plus is fantastic. And just the work that you've been putting in is, uh, is impressive and gold mine of information. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> thanks, Gabe. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?